Good morning, PMC. It is good to be here. This has been, uh, uh, I have been looking forward to this day for quite some time. And uh, I want to thank you for your very, very warm welcome. Uh, thank you, Elder Mitchiff, for being here and for leading out in my, you know what they call what just happened, right? An installation. We'll just move on from there. Thank you for that. I appreciate it very much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, for being here. Looking forward to working with you. Uh, thank you also to the pastoral staff that have uh, given me a warm welcome here. And thank you to so many of you. It would take me too long to list. So many of you have been very gracious in providing food and transportation and a roof over my head and my family's head. Uh, it has just been very, very good to begin to be part of this Pioneer Memorial Church family. Thank you. And without further ado, let us begin. It was the shot of a lifetime. You see, before I was an Andrews University Cardinal, I was a student, among other places, at Forest Lake Academy in Apopka, Florida. And uh, we did not play interscholastic sports at that time. We did play intramurals, though, and that meant that there were two games each year that to us were the biggest and the best. One was Alumni Weekend, in which the current student body got to play against the last 30 years, best and brightest, and often we would lose that match. But then there was another one, and it was called the All-Star Game. Now, the All-Star Game, at the time this story takes place, was just a couple of months away. And uh, to us, th this is where the freshmen and the juniors, the best basketball players from those classes, would play against the so best players from the sophomores and the seniors. I was a senior at this time, and uh, I was looking forward to the game. Uh, you see, uh, my friend and I, we worked in the gym. And some of you may know Rodney Fulbright, a good man. We worked for him there while I was a student. And in the gymnasium, uh, Coach Fulbright knew how to motivate us. He said, uh, if you get your work done, you can play basketball in the gym for the remainder of the time that you are clocked in. So when people ask if I ever played professional basketball, the answer is yes. <laughs> I did. I did. And so uh, we, we, play, we went in, we cleaned our, the, the restrooms and the locker rooms and all of those things, and then we would go down to the far end of the gym, and we would play, but with the all-star game on the horizon, we didn't just play anything. We practiced one shot and one shot only. And that was a dunk. Because we knew, we knew in our high school minds that if we could dunk in the all-star game, we would become legends forever. Our names would be spoken in hushed tones in the hallways. They would emblazon our picture on T-shirts. Other underclassmen would wear them. We knew that our ticket to eternal bliss was found in dunking in that game. So we practiced. Now, we practiced everything we could think of. Just a regular dunk, straight to the basket, reverse from behind the backboard. Anything that we could do, we were going to be ready. And we would joke with each other. I'd say, you know what, it, it, it's going to be me that's going to dunk in that game. And my friend would say, no, 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 it's, it's going to be me. Said, no, 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 it's going to be me. Finally... The day came. I think it was a Saturday night when this game took place. Uh, the gym was full. Students were there. Again, this was, this was a big deal on campus. And uh, we're warming up there, and other people are doing layups. And uh, my friend and I know we're dunking. We don't know layups for us. We're just dunking. We're getting ready. I said, it's going to be me, man. It's going to be me. No, it's going to be me. 
I can't tell you who won that game. I don't remember. I can't tell you what the score was. I can remember some of my teammates. But one thing I remember crystal clear is the play. Capital T, capital P, the play. Here's what happened. Uh, I was a little lazy coming down on, on defense. And so what that meant is, is that all nine players were down at the freshman and junior end. And one of the freshmen or junior on their team shot the ball. They missed, and a senior got the rebound. Now picture this. All nine players are down there. I'm just coming over half court, and my hoop is completely unguarded. Showtime. And I tell you, the rest of the story from this point on, in my mind, goes in slow motion. Okay? I mean, this is like an ESPN rewind, kind of you know, slow analyzing each step. I t- you know, as quick, quietly as I can, I jump up and down and shout for the ball. They throw it to me. I catch it. I start to dribble. And I am running quickly down the center of the court. I am going to shove this thing right down the middle on that hoop. I'm going out. The crowd is on their feet. They are with me. They, go, oh! they know what's coming. They know we've been practicing. This is the moment. I dribble the ball, and I I step just over the free throw line. Now, Jordan could jump from the free throw line. I wasn't quite that gifted altitudinally. And so I stepped just beyond it, and I jumped. Nay, I leaped. (laughs) This, 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 This was free flight with a basketball in my hand. And I am going upwards. True story, could just see over the front of the rim. Eyesight just see over the front of the rim. And in those days, uh, you know, my hands hadn't quite expanded. I couldn't palm a ball. And so, so I would bring it up with my left hand. And as I'm going through the air, I bring it up here and I bring it to my right. The crowd is yelling. The gym is throbbing with, 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 with cheers. Go, go, go. And up comes the ball and down comes my hand and back goes the basketball. <laughs> About 40 feet off the back of the rim that I had just slammed the ball into with such great force. And, and I'm kind of watching this. I cannot believe what just happened. And, and, and I, I trip and I fall into this ball underneath the end there. And the guy who actually passed me the ball got the rebound and made a layup. And as he goes past, he says, hey, nice shot, dude. <laughs> I had missed the shot of a lifetime. You know, it took a few milliseconds to begin to ask myself a question. Any guesses what the question was? How in the world did that happen? How did I miss the shot of a lifetime? You know, it wasn't because of of a lack of skill. I mean, I I had practiced this. I I knew that court inside and out. I was ready for that day. It wasn't because of equipment failure, although I would have loved to have blamed my shoe. My my, my shoe had a flat. I mean, I I don't know what I would blame, but all the equipment was in fine order. I couldn't even say it was because I didn't have moral support. The entire gym was on their feet cheering me on save for a few freshmen and juniors. No, it wasn't those things. Upon further reflection, I think that the reason I missed the shot of a lifetime 
boiled down to just one word. Focus. Focus. You see, believe it or not, when I was going up for that dunk, I was not thinking about my teammates. I was not thinking about helping my class win the all-star game. There was no altruism flowing through my veins. I was not thinking of how I could better the reputation of Forest Lake Academy. No, there was only one thing I was focused on, and that was me. What will this do for my reputation, my image? What will people be saying about me when I slam this ball through that hoop? Focus. You know, as it turns out, selfishness is distracting. Think about that for a moment. So often when we talk about selfishness, we, we talk about the right things. You know, it causes pain and suffering and war and broken relationships and tension, etc., etc. All of that is true. But the reason those things are true is because of the distraction. Instead of focusing on what we ought to focus on, we are focused on ourselves. And distraction can lead to missed opportunities and failures. And in the sports world, that's annoying. But in the church world, It can be devastating, which is probably why the Bible has things like this to say. If you have a Bible, turn, please, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to read also verse 28. You know, Philippians is a joyful book. Uh, ask any Bible scholar, anybody who's read through this, you know it is a joyful book. This is not like the letters to the Corinthians uh, where there was all manner of difficulties and Paul had to say some, some rather strong things to them. Not so with the Philippian church. This is a happy place. Apparently God and, and, and the Philippian believers are on very, very good terms. And so chapter after chapter, one, two, three, and four, Paul is, is relaying his joy even though he himself is in chains. Difficult things are happening in his life. He says, I rejoice because of you. I give thanks because of you. And in the midst of this joy and thankfulness, Paul has something to say about focus. Notice carefully. Verse 27. Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Pause right there, please. A manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, We could fill in the gap pretty easily after that sentence, couldn't we? What does it mean to live life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, uh, being loving, being kind, uh, uh, helping other people, all of this. And elsewhere in the New Testament, these things are indeed talked about. But it's very interesting because Paul doesn't choose any of those things. Instead, he says, if you're going to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what that would look like. He says, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. Pause again, please. To the best of my knowledge, this is the strongest statement on teamwork in the church in all of the New Testament. You say, how do you know? Well, follow me carefully here. 
Paul here is saying, he's using the word here. It actually doesn't say you know, male or female here. It actually uses the word suke, Greek word for, for, for mind, for an individual. In other words, the church is to so closely work together with one another, the members of the church. They are to work so closely together that when they act on God's behalf, it is as though there is one person acting. You know, to continue that sports analogy, you can have a superstar on a, on a sports team, but if they don't also have good teamwork, a team that has no superstar but has good teamwork will nine times out of ten beat them. Good teamwork with good players and no all-stars wins championships. Think of the spiritual implications. Paul here is saying, if you are going to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what that will look like. You will act together. Now, how many people in the Philippian church? We don't know. It doesn't say. Undoubtedly more than one. There were probably many people in the Philippian church, given its location, etc., etc. Paul says, how will I know that you are acting in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's because when you work together, it will be not as 50, not as 20, not as 100. It will be as one person. Wow! (laughs) That's an astonishing level of oneness. But it gets even better. Verse 28. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Let me read the previous sentence to that here again. It's the middle of verse 27. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Isn't it interesting how teamwork cuts fear right down? You know, we Adventists, we, we believe, and rightly so, uh, certain things about what happens after you die. When you die, you're dead. But nine out of ten Adventists don't want to walk by themselves through a dark cemetery at night. Uh, not, not so sure about that. I mean, we, we'll, we may go through it, but we're going to be quoting Ecclesiastes, you know, 9, 5, and 6 the whole way through, right? Okay. The dead know nothing, the dead know nothing, dead know nothing. But if we take ten other people with us, it's a party. Oh, there's old so-and-so's grave. You remember? Oh, he was a great guy. We're just having a good time because we're doing it together. Teamwork has a way, and Paul here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is recognizing this fact. Teamwork has a way of cutting fear right down to size. And it gets even better. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be, what's that last word there? Saved, and that by God. Wow. (laughs) Teamwork, unity, cohesiveness, Synergistic ministry for God is a sign to the world that we are Christians. That's what he's saying here, isn't it? It, it, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, it means that when we we work, we work together as a team, and it's as though there's only one person. We're we're so cohesive and in harmony in our movement. It's as though there's one person doing it. This is a sign that you will be saved, that you are a Christian, 
that you know Jesus Christ, because that is salvation. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that you may, they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, he says, pointing to himself, that you have, whom you have sent. Teamwork, harmony, unity is a sign of our salvation. It's not the means of our salvation, but it is most certainly a sign of it, the evidence of it. In a world that is fractured and fighting and going to war both on the battlefield and in their living rooms, Christians have the opportunity to show the world what Jesus, the great uniter, can do when he is first in our lives. And I wonder, I wonder, is it possible that the opposite is also true? Now, what do I mean by that? You know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm studying a passage of Scripture, I like to read it backwards. I like to kind of, kind of read the meaning in reverse, just, just to kind of illustrate nuances and subtleties in the text. Uh, what comes next here, this is just the gospel according to Shane. You can take it or leave it. Here's, here's what I wonder. Is it possible that the opposite of what we've been talking about here is also true? What if just as teamwork and cooperation in the body of Christ is a sign of our salvation and a source of strength and a sign of victory over our enemies, could it be also that if we are not working together as a team, if we are not cooperating with each other, that it is a sign that we are lost? That it is a sign of weakness and that those who oppose us, instead of being overcome, will actually overcome us. I wonder. Now, again, I don't want to force something out of this text that isn't there, but whatever our interpretations of this passage may be, surely we can at least agree on this. Disunity in God's church is not God's desire. Can you say amen to that? Amen and amen. It's not his ideal, hardly. It's far removed from it. And if we are continually fractured in the church, if we allow ourselves to become bitter with one another, or if we're quietly undermining a brother or a sister in the church through gossip or innuendo, we can be assured that this is not what God has called us to. And all such behavior will adversely affect our strength and our courage and our ability to do what God has asked us to do. Now, small wonder then that Jesus said what he said in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Let me read it here. Jesus here, this is the longest prayer we have on record uh, of Jesus in the Bible. These are literally his last few hours before the cross. The cross is just shortly before him. He's there praying for his disciples, and then he transitions to praying for us. Jesus says, I am not asking on behalf of them alone, on his disciples, the 12 disciples alone, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? That's us, isn't it? That's us. The the reason I'm a Christian and you're a Christian is because the disciples told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who told somebody else and then they told us, okay? So Jesus here is praying for us, okay, that all of them may be how many? One, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be as we are, I in them 
and you in me, that they may be in, what are those last two words? Wow. Talk about sky high. You know, higher than the highest human thought is God's ideal for his children. This is astonishing what God is calling us to. <laughs> and right here, I want to ask a very important question. Why? Why the sky-high calling, Jesus? Why, why, why so much focus on oneness and harmony and unity in your church? Why, Jesus? You know, I think there's at least two answers. Number one, it's fun. It's awesome. Now, I'm sure that I'm going to find this here. I just got here a few moments ago, and I just became your pastor a few minutes ago, so I don't have years of experience to pull on here, but I'm sure it's true here. In other places where I have been, there have been times when we have worked with such cohesiveness, it has just been awesome. We have taken on tasks as a church, and we have, we have worked together as a team in unity and in love, and it was as though we were contending as one person for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just an awesome thing. You get up in the morning and say, how quickly can I get down to the next activity of God's people? How, 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 how much more time can I spend with what God is doing in this body? It's fun. It's awesome. It's a great thing. And that's one reason why I think Jesus wants us to experience that, because it's just good for our souls, and it's good for other people too. Speaking of, the second reason, and an even more important one, than our own pleasure is a reason that Jesus himself gives in the last part of verse 23. It says, I have given them, Jesus said in verse 22, the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly united, and here's the last part now, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. Hear it and hear it well. For all of the joy and fulfillment and goodness that comes to us in the church from working together in the body of Christ, it is ultimately not for those reasons that Christ has called us here to be unified. It is instead we are to be unified for the sake of mission, for the sake of making disciples for Him. Do you, do you see it here? If they know that Jesus was sent from heaven, that the Father himself sent Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he is the creator, that he is Lord of all, and this same Jesus came here to show his love, as it's talking about here, this is the gospel. This is the making of disciples. Jesus himself is saying, Lord, Father in heaven, may they be one as we are one so that other people may know us as well. This business of making disciples, this is serious stuff. It's joyous stuff, and it is our calling. One of the things that means is that all that is done here, in and through this place, PMC, right here in this building, is to be geared toward discipleship. I mean, there are many things that we, that we can do here, all kinds of good things that we can do. But at core, at root, Jesus has said here, be one that you might make disciples for me. All that is done here must be geared towards that. We are not yet in heaven we cannot sit back and simply enjoy the benefits of Christian community without expanding it to other people. We are instead called to take the harmony and the unity and the oneness of action 
and use it to ceaselessly, intentionally, and joyously make more disciples for Jesus. And let's put an even finer point on this. We, and as of 20 minutes ago, I can say this now, we, the Pioneer Memorial Church, have the great privilege of being on the campus of Andrews University. And just down the street, we have two other institutions that we are blessed to partner with, Andrews Academy and Ruth Murdoch Elementary. This means that in this church, probably more than most other churches on planet Earth, because there are so many of you here that that work at or have worked at or who are somehow connected with these institutions, we as a church, as PMC, we know how to do a number of things really well. I mean, I just got here, but I've been around long enough. I'm I'm pretty sure about what I'm going to say next year. There are some things that this place does really well. We know how to teach. I mean, this is where you go, right, to learn how to do that. We know how to do that because you're also part of our congregation here. We know how to inspire people to learn more in a given field or within a given subject. We know how to establish and run new programs to meet the changing needs of society, to facilitate learning in dozens of ways. PMC, we know how to be part of a campus that knows how to recognize achievement, conferring diplomas and degrees and other accolades. We know how to assist in making world changers. And on and on the list could go. And I think that's awesome. I think that's a great, great thing. It is incredible. It is inspiring. It is essential. And we must continue to strive to be the absolute best at these things that we can be. And... And, A-N-D, and all of these good and necessary and important things that I just mentioned must be put into the service of making disciples of and for Jesus Christ. Uh, George Knight, uh, he was one of my professors when I was here at the seminary. Uh, after my book came out in 2009, uh, I had the privilege of, we, we, we didn't travel together, but in essence we did because we spoke at the, a lot of the same conventions and places. Uh, and I learned a lot. And, and one of the things that I learned from George had the, it came from his book, Myths in Adventism. Now, this is an older book. I believe in the 90s is when it came out. And he had a quotation, pages 50 and 51, that I want to put up here. Now, in this quote, uh, George is, is overlapping some of his commentary with Ellen White quotations. And you'll see it here. Let's, let's read this. It says, In the highest sense, penned Ellen White, the work of education and the work of redemption are how many? There's that word again. One. Because both build directly upon Jesus Christ. To lead the student into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, quote, should be the teacher's first effort and his constant aim. Wow. Education, page 30. Here is education's highest and primary goal. The number one goal of Adventist education, the number one goal of every Adventist educator in every classroom, whether it's in the school or in the Sabbath school class or just in personal conversations, the number one goal of Adventist education is to establish the student in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is its primary purpose. We say, well, well, how important is that? Well, it's interesting what uh, Dr. Knight here says. Mrs. White wrote that the all-important thing in education should be the conversion of the students. This Fundamentals of Education, page 436. It is upon the foundation, and by the way, this is uh, Dr. Knight's emphasis, not mine. It is upon the foundation of the new birth experience that Christian education can proceed with its other aims and purposes if it fails at this foundational and primary 
primary point, it has failed entirely. Wow. The conversion of students is not the only thing on a teacher's list. It's just number one. It's primary. It's first. And I praise the Lord for this. And I praise the Lord specifically because I and, and you, we, have the privilege of sitting where we are sitting. You say, what do you mean? The wonderful truth about this campus, the flagship campus of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is that every year there are students, from the youngest kindergartner to the oldest grad student, hundreds of which have not yet made a decision for Jesus Christ. And they are right here. They are right here. They come to us, to this campus. They're right on our doorstep, and we have the privilege of seeking and praying, acting in the love of Christ to help them to know Jesus Christ as their personal friend and Savior. That's an awesome thing. And to our point this morning, how much better, how much better can we carry out that blessed task than when we work together as a team to do it? So we've talked about the what, Christian unity. We've talked about the why, blessings to ourselves, yes, but ultimately to make disciples of other people. And for our purposes this morning, just one more question to ask and answer. How? How? How is this level of unity that Christ calls us to to be achieved? Now, some of you are wondering how I'm going to answer this in the next three minutes. Because you've been an Adventist for a while, right? And especially, you know, and, 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 and let's take us out of this, this current context for just a moment. Anytime there is a group of people in an educational context asking questions, differences of opinion is part and parcel. It's part of the fuel that runs the place. Am I right? Okay. So how do you find unity in that? There's no doubt that Jesus is calling us to us to it. I mean, this is not optional. It's not like Jesus is giving you multiple choice. You, know, you could choose harmony. You could choose eh, tolerance. You can kind of make do with it. No, he doesn't say that. He's called us to be as close to one another in our ministry for him as he is to the Father. This is not an option. How is it to be achieved? You know, we could talk about the importance of good communication, of, of withholding judgment, listening to one another. We could talk about uh, the importance of forgiveness, forbearance, love, charity. And all of those are important paths to achieving Christian unity. And on other Sabbaths, perhaps we will talk about those things. But ultimately, for our purposes today, there is only one best answer as to how this unity is to be achieved. The ultimate key to achieving genuine Christian unity, the indispensable path to becoming unified and solidified and harmonious and acting as one person in our ministry for God, the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And it's not because I say so. It's because he does. Final quote for you here today. John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus is speaking. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all peoples to myself. Was Jesus lifted up from the earth? Yes. Yes, he was. He was crucified. Crucified for my sins and for yours. And he lay in the grave and he rose on the third day that we might have eternal life, that we might be saved from our life of sin. And as it turns out, because of this, unity is a location. Did you hear me? Unity is a location. Jesus said that he is the, 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 the foci, the, the, the locus of Christian unity. If unity is to be found, there's only one place to find it, and that's gathered around Jesus Christ. With wounded hands and wounded feet and wounded side, that is the place that Christian unity is found. It cannot be found any other place. All of the good communication and forbearance and tolerance, etc., that has its place. It's even indispensable. But more important than all of that, are we with Jesus? That is the source of our unity. It's the only place that it can be found. And it is through the unity that we find there that the church will, by their sweat and God's grace, strive to help others to become Christ's disciples as well. (laughs) You know, as it turns out, the shot of a lifetime is not dunking in the all-star game. The shot of a lifetime is not hitting a home run in the World Series. The shot of a lifetime is not scoring that that, that winning goal in the NHL championship. It's not marrying the person of your dreams, as important as that is. The shot of a lifetime is is not becoming a millionaire or a billionaire or, or becoming famous. It's none of those things. It turns out that the one true shot of a lifetime is coming to know Jesus Christ as your personal friend and Savior. That is the shot of a lifetime. And you and I, we have a choice. We have a decision to make. We can commit ourselves to Jesus Christ as our friend and Savior, walking with him daily, getting to know him better and better, taking our eyes off of ourselves and instead fix our eyes on the greatest prize of all, Jesus Christ. And the inevitable result will be unity, a unity that is best expressed, Jesus says, in making disciples for him. May God richly bless us as we seek to be that kind of church.